Welcome to this special episode of On the Investor's Minds. I'm Tai Hui, the Chief Market Strategist for Asia Pacific at JP Morgan Asset Management. And in this episode, we'll make available the latest video replay of our 2024 first quarter Guide to the Markets Asia webinar. In this webinar, my colleague James Burdis and I will discuss a lot of the questions asked by our clients and investors across the Asia Pacific region. And more importantly, how do we make use of the first quarter guide to the markets, Asia, in order to address these questions and issues. Please enjoy. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and also rate us on your preferred podcast platform. It does help us to make this podcast even more impactful. And a very happy new year to our listeners around the region. Welcome to this, our first JP Morgan Guide to the Markets webinar for 2024. And I'm delighted as ever to be your host today. My name is James Burdus, and I look after global strategic relationships for JP Morgan and Asia Pacific. And as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by our chief market strategist for Asia Pacific, Tai Hoy. Tai, happy new year to you. How did you spend the holiday season? Uh, I, I went skiing for the first time in my life. Uh, so I was rolling down the hills quite literally and uh, thinking about what can go wrong both with myself and also with the markets. <laughs> quite, quite a nice analogy, I think, indeed, for markets. And let's hope there's a lot of you know, tumbling and, and rumbling, but in an upwards trajectory for, for the markets in 2024. But as it is the time of the year to be setting New Year's resolutions, we, of course, will be sticking to one in particular, which is using our guide to the markets to, to work through some of the pertinent questions uh, that investors will have in their minds as we step into 2024 as asset allocators and stewards of our clients' capital. So we really hope to use today's call to, to go through that with you all. And we do, of course, really appreciate you joining us for this, our first of the year. Um, and while we don't really have an investment New Year's resolution in a single sense, we definitely are going to try and cover a range of asset classes today, a number of topical issues that are on investors' minds. So so Ty, let's let's dive into perhaps the best place for us to start this year, which is to recalibrate our minds and our, our listeners' minds today on asset class returns for 2023. We certainly saw a spectrum of asset class returns uh, throughout the course of the year, but actually a lot of investors, as we'd seen, were anchored to cash as a key asset class and sought refuge perhaps in, in cash for 2023. But let's just just go through that, please, if you may. And we do obviously think that that thesis may be challenged in 2024. And perhaps we might even have seen a return of, of the usual benefits and perhaps free lunch of diversification returning between equities and bonds. Yeah, look, James, I think uh, if you look at the, the chart on the, uh, the screen right now, uh, you notice that in 2023, a diversified portfolios of stocks and bonds uh, significantly outperformed cash. And that, I think... You know, while 2023 has been quite a challenging year for forecasters, for economists, for strategists, uh, there was one view that we held at the start of last year, so 12 months ago, that we expected 2023 to be a year where uh, a portfolio staying invested should outperform cash after, obviously, a very challenging 2022. And you can see right here that uh, this proved to be correct. Now, uh, it wasn't um, a straight line. You know, I think up to the point of, say, middle part of Q3, there was a lot of volatility, bond yields went up, and, uh, you know, that, that there was a moment where, you know, a, a, a portfolio was performing in line with cash. But as soon as the Fed started to indicate that the rate hike cycle is over, I think, you know, you started to see bond yields come down, you started to see equities perform quite well, 
And that provided a very favorable backdrop, especially towards the second half of Q4. So um, ultimately, I think you know, our view for 2023 in this sense, uh, where a portfolio outperforming cash, that was correct. And I do think that in 2024, we should see something similar as a result of, again, the pivoting of the Fed's policy, potentially seeing rate cuts uh, later in the year. That to us is going to be really critical in underpinning um, positive return for both equities and fixed income. So we may not get that negative correlation between stocks and bonds that everyone was looking for, but I do think that even if stocks and bonds move in the same direction, 2024 should be a year where uh, both of these assets move in a similar direction, but in a positive way, rather than in 2022, where they move in the same direction, but in a negative way. It's a great starting point for today's call. So there is there is a case potentially for the traditional 60-40. We'll talk a little bit about that through asset allocation later. But you alluded to it there, Ty, just a, a short moment ago, that the, the narrative in markets has somewhat shifted since our last call in 2023 um, to one really where investors are anchored less in the thought of Fed pause, but more in potential Fed pivot and and going down the interest rate spectrum, not just in, in the US, but thinking about that across the world. Global growth is anticipated to slow in 2024, and the investment community have turned their attention to how to play that narrative within their investment portfolios. So first of all, just in the US, what do you think to the soft versus hard landing narrative playing out in the US? So um, I think in the US, the good news is that with the Fed willing to be more flexible in what policy, and, and therefore being more aware of the two-way risk to the economy, um, I do think that you know, the risk of a hard landing is reduced. It's much more likely that we will see growth deceleration, but you know, I think growth in 2024 is likely to be positive, but slightly below trend. So that is a very uh, narrow band that we're looking into. But um, the reality is high interest rates will provide some breaks on the economy. If you look at, for example, on the screen right now, on the left-hand chart, uh, 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 the share of loans in early delinquency is starting to pick up. So for especially for low-income households, the high interest rate environment and the uh, aggressive borrowing in 2023 is starting to create some pressure on household balance sheets. We're not in a crisis uh, mode, because still, the mid to high income families or households, they're still in pretty good shape. The job market, as we saw last Friday, is still creating jobs in, in abundance. Uh, so from that perspective, it's more likely to be uh, consumer spending cooling down while, rather than falling off a cliff. Likewise, on the corporate spending and also government spending, we're likely to see some slowdown. Many large companies, they've managed to lock in cheap funding costs for you know, a couple of years. And therefore, the, the rise in interest rates have yet to impact their balance sheets. For small and medium enterprises, it's much more immediate. Again, you could see them slowing down. But um, overall, we expect corporate spending, again, to decelerate rather than collapse. For government spending, obviously, the COVID era 2023 was where um, you know, uh, President Biden introduced a number of uh, uh, as a spending measures to promote corporate investment, whether it's in semiconductors or renewable energy. And that really did help to, again, support the economy in 2023. Uh, in 2024, because of the composition of the Congress, because of the elections coming up later in the year, uh, obviously we're not going to see as much of a fiscal stimulus 
coming through, and therefore the fiscal impulse is also likely to be slower, maybe negative on the economy. So all in all, in the US, we do expect growth to decelerate, but uh, at, this at this point in time, uh, it's likely that we're more likely to get a soft landing rather than a hard or harsh recession. On the inflation front, again, I think you know we've had a very healthy decline in both headline and core inflation. You can see again uh, on this page uh, right now, um, the decline in energy prices did help to take away some of the inflation momentum. But you can also see that areas such as food at home, uh, such as uh, you know new and used vehicles, again, those contribution to inflation is now much smaller, maybe even slightly negative. So from that perspective, the cost of living price is not completely gone, but we're moving in the right direction. But I think that the, the slight caveat here is that the decline in inflation is likely to be slower in 2024 because we are now starting to move into some of the more stubborn inflation components, such as, uh, you can see on the left-hand chart, shelter costs, Rent, it's been, um, uh, the rent inflation is, is slowing down, but it will take time for that to be reflected in the shelter costs. And also things like restaurants, hotels, transportation, the service sector, uh, those price increases are still very much with us. So uh, I think that does call for the Fed to be a bit more patient with regards to that pivot. I think it's great that they're looking to what they've done with raising rates. That's part one. But I think the willingness to look for rate cuts later in the year to prevent real interest rates from rising too far, I think that's positive. But at the same time, the timing of that cut, I, I would argue that you know, um, as, as recent as uh, the last week, the market was looking for a March cut or a 60-70% probability of a March cut. I do think that's too early because what that means is that between now and the mid-March meeting, you are going to need some very, very poor economic data, whether it's job numbers or sharp drop in inflation um, or some sort of financial stress. And, well, never say never, but I think the probability of that happening continues to be relatively low, which means the Fed is more likely to wait until middle of the year, maybe even after the summer, for them to consider the first rate cut. So, obviously, the Fed will need to prep the market, communicate, uh, over the next couple of meetings, we will have more conference call on that uh, later on. But um, from my perspective, uh, the, the, the March cut, it, to me, is too early. And that also means, um, you know, some of the optimism in the bond market, in the stock market, at least for the short term, might be a little overdone. So um, the correction that we saw last week, you know, to start the year off, uh, is not that surprising. But to me, for the rest of this year, so we'll come back to asset allocation in a moment, uh, that Fed attitude change, that pivot, to me, is absolutely critical in asset allocation and also think about how we uh, invest in both fixed income as well as in equities. Absolutely. Yeah, that is such an important point. And Ty, just thinking a little bit closer to home around China, China in particular is, is a part of the world that is very important to people's asset allocation in this part of the world, but also has global resonance, really, when you think about U.S., China, uh, geopolitics, and the broader narrative around China impacting on global markets, and the, you'd argue the opposite is true in the U.S. as well. So how do you think that that you know, manifests itself into positioning for, for China and, and Asia as a whole? Yeah, look, the Chinese economy clearly is still uh, in need of more momentum. If you look at uh, consumption, 
Uh, people are happily spending away on things like dining, on, on watching a movie, uh, but the overall retail spending is still not growing as well as it should, partly because, again, the real estate sector is holding a lot of things back. And we did see a lot of measures trying to improve sentiment on the real estate sector, on the property markets, but ultimately, something that we've been arguing for much of last year, uh, the level of confidence by potential buyers is still relatively conservative. So, you know, if they're not expecting price increase in the property market, um, the reality is they're going to hold back, and therefore that recovery is still going to be pending. Um, so from that perspective, I think from a policy standpoint, we do expect more fiscal stimulus. We do expect more monetary stimulus. But for monetary stimulus, for lower rates, for uh, reduction in reserve requirements to work, you need both companies and the household sector to feel more optimistic about the outlook, and therefore they'll be more willing to borrow and for banks to be more willing to lend. So I think a lot of this is still hinging on one thing, and that's the level of confidence amongst the general public as well as uh, amongst the business sector. And that, to me, will require a little bit more uh, stabilization in the property market, uh, maybe a bit more encouragement from the authorities on investing in properties. Um, but overall, uh, I think the, uh, the level of consumer spending and potential, some picked up in exports, uh, should help to provide a bit of a lift uh, to the Chinese economy. So four and a half, five percent, I think it's still very much achievable for this year. But to me, the key here is whether the property market can finally uh, bottom out and stabilize and start to grow once again. But uh, I think we do need a bit more patience from that perspective. And just expanding on that, um, on, on Asia, uh, there are some good news. And again, something that we've highlighted uh, last quarter and that is that um, you know, the export sector is starting to see some green shoots of recovery. Yes, the PMI data, many of the Asian exporting economies like Korea, like Taiwan, they're still sub-50. But if you look at some of the more recent export numbers, they are starting to pick up. I think a couple of things to bear in mind. One, um, technology uh, uh, equipment, uh, components, they went through a very significant inventory destocking cycle last year. So... I think you can see again on the left-hand chart, which is a new chart in, in our guide to the markets, uh, that production in technology is starting to accelerate once again after having quite a sharp uh, correction in, in the last couple of years. Um, also, when it comes to AI, um, you know, last year was very much about uh, you know, uh, chatbots or chat GPT. Um, I think in the next year or two, or maybe even you know, going further down the line, uh, you could see there's a lot more components, there's a lot more equipment, consumer electronics that looks to try to embed that technology inside our mobile phones or tablets or laptops rather than relying on cloud computing to process those AI requests. So from that perspective, that may also kick off another round of uh, 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 you know, equipment updates as well as uh, you know, people might look to switch their new mobile phones with a better capabilities in those AI services. So I think from that angle, uh, you know, while we look at Asia, clearly China is still a bit of a, a, a slowing, a slow growth economy in relative terms. I think the rest of Asia, especially the exporters, should see a more constructive 2024, despite the fact that we are expecting some slowdown in the US economy as well as in the developed economies. It's an interesting time to be thinking about the, the DM versus EM 
equity story and I guess what you're suggesting that's high as well for the last number of years it's been very much a US equity DM story and that in some ways will continue to play out in certain parts of the world but the opportunity set ahead of us for Asia even with some sort of negative headwinds potentially holding back the China space in particular there's still a broad opportunity set to play within across the Asia equity space that's great and I know that you've done quite a bit of work with the team around you know, the compartments and components of equity returns. Do you want to talk a little bit through that as well? Sure. Uh, before that, just very briefly, um, we have a new chart, well, newish chart in regards to the markets that I think is really interesting and really important um, to discuss the, high, the interest rate cycle. So many of you who joined us in the last quarter, remember that we have a chart uh, currently on the screen that looks at the end of the hiking cycle and what happened um, to asset return one year after the end of the hiking cycle. And uh, our comments back then was in most cases, with the exception of 2001, because of the dot-com bust, um, equities and fixed income performed well uh, in that period. So, you know, we're still very much in that sweet spot where the end of the rate cuts, well, actually that took place um, in, in, you know, with hindsight that, that took place in the middle of last year. But what we have right now is that you're still uh, in an environment where both equities and fixed income should do well. But of course, the natural progression of that discussion is what happens after the first cut takes place. And therefore, we sort of extended our analysis. And you see on the right-hand side of this page, where we looked at, again, the same five interest rate cycles. And 12 months after the first cut, what happened there? And what you see here is for equities is a much broad, much wider distribution of returns. You have, in some cases, 20, 30% return. Um, and in some cases, minus 20, 30%. Now, I think these are for equities. The story here, I think, is that the context of the rate cuts is extremely important. If we are cutting rates or the cutting rates because of a financial crisis, because of a, uh, a market uh, a sharp downturn, clearly that creates a very negative uh, headwinds for equities. But if the Fed is cutting rates just to... Um, you know, keep growth going a little bit more, we're achieving that soft landing that we expect to see, I think the dots are much more likely to be in the positive half of that of that chart. So, you know, I think the key here is that rate cuts by no means is going to be unanimously great or bad for equities. It depends. Um, and then for fixed income, you can see that the story is a little different. U.S. Treasuries, uh, uh, I'm very careful to use the word always, but at least all the dots you see here is above zero. So they generate positive return. And intuitively, that is quite simple because, well, rate cuts, bond use falls, bond price goes up. Therefore, you generate a positive return. Um, and then you've got IG, investment grade. Again, most of the time, they do generate better return uh, compared to high yield, where credit spreads widening clearly creates a bit more of a pressure for um, uh, a high-yield uh, corporate bonds. But if you look at the far right-hand side, a 60-40 portfolio, again, typically does outperform cash in a soft landing environment, partly because equities does well. So I think from an asset allocation perspective, in the context of the end of the hiking cycle, potentially we are running into the rate cut cycle later this year. I think hopefully this chart gives you a bit of context on how to think about asset allocation, equities, and fixed income. Right now, I would argue that because of our view of a relatively benign slowdown in the U.S. economy, there is still a pretty strong case 
to be balanced between equities and fixed income, especially after the rally that we saw uh, earlier, uh, sorry, uh, late in 2023. And coming back to your question, James, in terms of uh, the source of return, um, I think uh, hopefully what you see on the screen right now, this diagram is a very simplistic uh, way to think about how we think about equities and uh, fixed income return. Equities is driven by earnings, valuations, re-rating or derating, um, you know, share buybacks or share counts, uh, dividends, all that adds up to your total equity return. I've left out FX, I've left out a couple of other things, but I think this is the, the way you can think about how to construct your equity allocation by thinking about what will be driving uh, return, both short-term and long-term. For example, in the long-term, earnings plays a much more important role than valuations. Um, dividends plays a really important role in the long-term. But if you're looking at the next six, 12 months, valuation, again, the role may be a little bit more significant. Fixed income, likewise, we think about credit spreads, widening, tightening, how that changes the bond price, risk-free rates going up or down, and of course, uh, the coupon contribution um, to, to income. So um, the reason I want to bring this up, and hopefully everyone is familiar with, it, with this concept, the reason I want to bring this up, because for example, as I'll show you in a moment, uh, fixed income valuations or credit spreads is quite tight. So, you know, the potential return from this area may be a little bit more limited, but as we expect the Fed to engage in rate cuts, risk-free rates should go down a little bit more. But more importantly, the role of coupon or yields in generating total return becomes very significant. If you look at equities, yes, U.S. equities does look a bit more expensive, but with a falling yield environment, you could expect even more valuation re-rating. So, um, the reason I want to highlight this particular chart or know your sources is because that's how I would think about constructing a view on U.S. equities, Asian equities, or fixed income uh, based on these components. Thanks, Ty. Absolutely. And introduced nicely there, fixed income. We're going to come on to that in a very quick second. But that previous chart that was new to the guide I think is a very good microcosm of what we're trying to do with the guide. For those of you joining today for the first time that are newer to the guide, it's about depicting those market narratives into very visual charts that are very user-friendly and, and able to be shared with end investors and relationship managers alike across, across the markets. So taking us into a, a new gear tie on fixed income, I think it's a good place for us to spend a good amount of time today because as I talk to wealth managers and investors across the region, as we stepped into 2024, we recognize that you know, house views and generally market sentiment is geared towards building an allocation around fixed income. But that also means that there is an increasing need to discern between the subsectors of fixed income and the opportunity sets that are available to investors in the year ahead. So would you mind just spending us I spent some time with just talking through the various subsectors for us. Yeah. So, look, just coming back to the same thing about the source of return. Uh, this is uh, what you see on the screen right now is the last six months not annualized, so the absolute return uh, for various types of fixed income uh, broken down into, for example, the price, which includes your change in the risk free rate, your change in credit spreads. The blue component is the income return. Um, and for local currency uh, fixed income, also the currency return. So um, I would argue that in some cases, the potential increase, or sorry, potential change in 
uh, prices is likely to be a little smaller for selective uh, or selected fixed income. Why is that? Um, if you look at the next page on, on the screen right now, you notice that, for example, let's take U.S. high yields or investment grade corporate debt as an example. You see that the current dot, the blue dot, the latest number, is at the bottom of the 10-year range. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't go further down, but uh, you can argue that you know, the room for this to, to, to tighten more is going to be quite limited. And also, think about the message. It's, it, this is standing to us. It's effectively telling us that investors think that the U.S. economy is going to be well, it's going to be great, it's going to be strong, and therefore default is going to be low. Now, I do agree that the current fundamentals of both high yields and investment grade is in pretty good shape. So default rates may not spike significantly, but are we really moving into a world of strong, robust economic growth in the U.S.? That's a bit more of a question mark. So the way I think about this is you may see uh, weaker U.S. data coming through in the course of 2024, and that credit spreads may widen a little bit, but that would mean a subtraction on the total return on fixed income. And that could be partially offset by a drop in, uh, in, in treasury yields. But overall, that means your total return on U.S. investment grade or higher corporate debt is likely to be what you see on the yield to maturity or yield to worst. Now, obviously, there are other markets that are looking less expensive, for example, uh, European uh, 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 European corporate debt uh, in, in the emerging market in fixed income. So I think we need to expand our horizon a little bit when it comes to uh, fixed income investing. I know that uh, in a lot of markets, for example, in Taiwan, in, in Southeast Asia, high yield is incredibly popular. In the U.S., so U.S. high yield is very incredibly popular. But I do think that uh, we may want to expand our investment horizon in fixed income and think a little bit more about uh, Asia and emerging market fixed income, especially if we think that the U.S. dollar is likely to depreciate against Asian currencies in 2024. So, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, I think our key message in the second half of last year was that you know, the window of opportunity to lock in high yields or high interest rates is gradually closing. Well, it did close between the uh, middle of October all the way to end of uh, December. It might open a little bit again because of the correction that we're seeing right now. But ultimately, when the Fed does engage in rate cuts later in the year, I think you know the uh, you know the, 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 the it's not too late to lock in yields as you, as you see uh, on this slide. But I think you know the the window will continue to close over time. So uh, the, the urgency to invest in fixed income is still very much there. Uh, but I would argue that after the rally in bonds in the, the second half of, or in, in, in the fourth quarter of last year, uh, you know, the relative attractiveness of fixed income inequities is now much closer compared to, well, it's much closer now. You know, I would argue that in Q4, uh, fixed income looks more attractive because of the relatively high yields and potential spread compression, but we've gone through that to some extent already. So I would argue that, you know, fixed income inequities, they still both look good, but the relative attractiveness maybe is now much more equal rather than fixed income being a little bit more attractive than equity. So it's now more 50-50 rather than, say, fixed income is 60 or equity 40s. So that, that has changed. I think that's perhaps the biggest update uh, you know, since we last met uh, uh, in Q4.
And juxtaposing that just briefly versus the benefits of holding cash, I think that narrative has shifted too. So, you know, we think of cash as almost being a short-term fixed income liquidity tool, and it's obviously offered yield to investors for a period of time. But that reinvestment opportunity cost or time opportunity cost has, has grown arguably versus fixed income and equity as a tool. Great. Okay. Let's just go back briefly, if we can, to, to the equity spectrum. And I did allude a little bit earlier on around a couple of issues. One of those was about the relative benefits of developed market equities versus emerging market equities. If you can, Ty, just talk us through the component parts of the equity spectrum that you think will offer opportunities for us in 24. Yeah. So look, um, as you may remember earlier, that bubble chart, we have uh, valuations, we've got earnings, we've got share counts, we've got dividends. Uh, so all of these, they do make a contribution to the overall equity market return. Again, uh, different time horizon, they play the role, the, 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 the importance is different. Uh, earnings is much more meaningful for long-term investors. Uh, in the shorter term, valuation, re-rating, de-rating uh, can play a big role. For example, in 2022, where uh, valuation derating because of the sharp increase in bond yields played a huge role in the depressed uh, performance of equities around the world. In 2023, uh, because bond yields did come down, especially again towards the latter half of Q4, that helped to propel uh, valuation. So uh, we'll come back to valuation in just a moment, but before I, uh, before I, go, if I go there, I do want to quickly touch on earnings. Um, if you look at, again, on this page here, on the left-hand chart, uh, the market is expecting 11% earnings growth for the U.S. after practically no growth in 2023. So my question is, if we are facing a slower growth environment in the U.S. and some of this inflation pressure hasn't completely gone away, which does imply for margin compression for, again, for companies, is 11% earnings growth or EPS growth or S&P 500 a bit too optimistic? The answer is probably yes. I mean, if you look back to 2022, uh, 5%, 2023, zero, 2024, 11, mm, that, that does look a little bit uh, too, too rich. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at Asia, if you look at emerging markets, we've had two very tough years, 2022, 2023. Part of that is because of China. Also, because of the um, electronic cycle, as I mentioned earlier, the consolidation in, in, in the last 18 months. So from that perspective, um, you know, the strong earnings potential for Asia and EM, to me, that's more credible. Uh, so from that angle, you know, from an earnings standpoint, I would argue that Asia is probably looking more constructive than the US or other developed markets in Asia. That would include Japan here. So that's the earnings earnings front. In terms of uh, valuations, I do think that in the U.S. there is an argument that valuations can uh, support the U.S. market, especially if we think back to our view where bond yields is still likely to drop further in 2024. Again, maybe small pickup or small correction uh, up on the upside in the near term, but between now and the end of the year. If Treasury yields does fall further, where there's 50 or 75 or even 100 basis points, what that means is that some of the sectors that are uh, that that a lower bond yields will facilitate a valuation re-rating, they should continue to benefit. Now we've brought back this page, uh, so the right-hand chart. We've had this before, and we we bring it back. 
um, because I do think that the, the chart is quite interesting where you can see the red circle, it's like the red uh, 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 rectangle, where uh, there's a negative relationship between bond yields and whether these sectors outperform MSCI world. And what you see here is that areas just technology, such as communication services, growth, they tend to uh, outperform uh, MSCI world, the benchmark, when bond yields are falling. So that, again, uh, you know, while earnings outlook may be challenging for the U.S., but I would argue that valuation re-rating could actually save the day. And the other point to bear in mind is um, some of the themes that we've been talking about, uh, artificial intelligence, um, obesity drugs, all of these can potentially, again, help to support valuations in the U.S. equity markets. So I think from the angle, earnings may be a bit challenging in the U.S., but I think the valuations could actually come and save the day. But obviously, the other end of the spectrum, when you think about Asian equities, so we have better earnings growth this year. Um, so on this page, what you see is that in 2024, the market consensus for many Asian markets is at least double-digit growth um, in their earnings. Yes, there are some markets that could be a little bit more challenged, for example, in Australia, in Singapore, in the Philippines, where they've had a really great year in 2023, 2024 will go back to a bit more normal growth. But you can see that in markets like Korea, like Hong Kong, who would benefit from lower rates, especially in the property sector, in Taiwan, in India, you know, the earnings growth is still looking quite, quite robust. So I think that, to me, provides a, a good foundation. And at the same time, the valuations in, in, in Asia is not particularly demanding. If you look at uh, price to earnings, markets like Asia Pacific X Japan, we're bang on in the middle of the long-term average. There are a number of markets that are below average, for example, Hong Kong and China. So I think from that perspective, you've got respectable earnings growth. You've got undemanding valuations. That, to me, is actually quite an uh, encouraging recipe for uh, outperformance in Asia relative to some of the developed markets. And the final component is currencies. If you look at uh, the, the, the current page where Asian currencies, markets like Japan, like China, like Malaysia, like Korea, their currencies are relatively undervalued, they're relatively cheap. I, I'm not saying they will you know, appreciate significantly, but the fact that the weaker dollar could potentially help these currencies to rebound and attract inflow back into the region, that to me, I think again, adds to the story for um, Asian equities. And finally, on this page, what you see on the right-hand side is that with a weaker US dollar, so the gray line should be going up, um, you typically see Asia outperforming developed markets. And on the left-hand side, you see the valuation right now, again, uh, the current band of price to book around 1.6 times, uh, you know, one year forecast or one year subsequent return, you can see most of the dots are actually above zero. So from that angle, uh, the uh, Fed rate cycle, the earnings outlook, the um, valuations, and also the currency, all of these to me are actually very much in favor of Asian markets in, in 2024. There's a number of potential catalyst tailwinds that we've alluded to there for the Asian equity asset class, you know, presented alongside developed market equities as an allocation. I think the case for equities still remains largely compelling across the DM construct, but equally now there are reasons to get or stay invested within Asian equities, which of course makes up a large 
component part of one's asset allocation for, for investors in this region is very important, therefore, to talk about. So, Ty, we've covered um, equities, we've covered fixed income, we've thought about it in terms of a portfolio construct for the asset allocators among us on the call. Let's just wrap together now all of those thoughts as we think about investors and investment journey in 2024. What do you think of those key punch points to leave our audience with today? Yeah, um, look, I think at this point, uh, there are not too many signs that the US economy is going to fall off a cliff. Of course, there are always bad swans that we can't forecast. That's the, that by, by definition, that's black swan. But I think if you look at um, the macro data, yes, there are some headwinds building. Um, for example, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the balance sheets of the household sector uh, looking starting to look a little bit less robust than last year. Uh, the corporate sector, the capex spending is likely to decelerate, especially as we get through to the election cycle uh, in the U.S. this year. Um, but overall, you know, I think we are looking at a deceleration rather than a growth falling off a cliff. Um, for China, to me, it's all about confidence. Again, something that we've been highlighting. Uh, for the past uh, past year, uh, consumers, the job market is still in a pretty soft shape. The housing sector that needs a much more uh, a much bigger boost in confidence, and that will carry consumer spending, local government spending, um, you know, corporate investment. So all of that, I think, is hinging on the real estate sector. But for the rest of Asia, despite a potential softer growth in developed economies like the U.S. and Europe. Uh, I think that you know the, uh, the the inventory restocking cycle and also the potential of the structural growth in artificial intelligence and other demand for consumer electronics uh, that should bode well for Asian exports. Um, the end of the hiking cycle, as we've been arguing for the last six months, is good for assets. Right, we our playbook for 2024, where we do think that both equities and fixed income can generate positive return, is very much based on the end of the hiking cycle. The start of rate cuts, that is good for fixed income. That's by definition, lower rates, higher uh, bond prices. It does vary for equities. If it's a hard landing, if it's a financial crisis, clearly that's gonna be very difficult for equities, but we're not really thinking about that at this point. We still think the US economy is gonna to glide towards a slower growth. Um, so overall, that still bodes well uh, for equities. In fixed income, a return contribution, I think, is mostly going to come from further drop in risk-free rates. Um, and of course, uh, so that's the duration benefit that you're going to get. Uh, and also, of course, from the income from the yields, uh, probably less so from the spreads. Never say never. But uh, I think, you know, like an elastic band, you can pause a little bit more. But frankly, I think uh, we're not going to get a huge amount of juice coming from spread compression, especially out of the U.S., um, in equities in the U.S., uh, earnings outlook is a bit optimistic, but lower yields are still positive for growth and for tech. And in Asia, we've got earnings recovery, we've got um, undemanding valuations, we've got weaker U.S. dollar, we have the Fed uh, potentially starting rate cut cycle. All of these should bode well for Asian equities. So um, I do think this could be a year where Asian equities can outperform developed markets, especially markets like uh, Europe or the UK, face a greater difficulties in, in, in their growth environment. Um, I just suffice to say, really appreciate everybody's time on today's first call of the year. We 
Um, and please do watch out for our upcoming webinars. Ty and his team have been putting out a number of useful articles and pieces on the website. As usual, you can find our guide to the markets there as well across the region. Um, and I think I just would like to wish you all a very happy new year again and leave the final word with Ty. Great, thanks James. As uh, again, happy new year. And on top of all the publications, we have a podcast uh, that's available on any of the popular podcast distributors uh, and also a daily guide to the market. So we continue to build on the daily guide to the markets um, and hopefully we can provide you with a daily updates on um, asset class return, on valuations, things that will help you to um, understand the markets and also explain the markets to your clients or to your to your investors. So thank you very much. And uh, of course, we'll have more calls this year. I think the next one is going to be in early February with the next F with, with the first FOMC meeting of the year. So look forward to see you all then. Thank you. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.